0: This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. Today, we've packed a number of shows together to give you some highlights. I know you're going to enjoy the show. Thank you for being with us today. This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Sam Rust. Joining us today is Charles Carrillo. Charles is the founder and managing partner of Harborside Partners, has been actively involved in over 200 million of real estate transactions since 2006. So as we were discussing, he's an OG. And Charles has extensive knowledge in renovating and repositioning multifamily and commercial real estate. In addition to being an active investor, Charles passively invests in many different assets, including commercial real estate, ATMs, early stage technology, and ag tech startups. That's an interesting one. Charles, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Sam. So great to be here. Yeah. Okay. Before we dive into real estate, I got to ask, ag tech, what's the connection? That's not something that just everybody has in their bio. Riff on that for 45 seconds.
1: So ag tech is a it's a very unique, obviously, as you just said, very unique um, asset class. But it's within tech where you're putting... It's mainly... What we've been investing in is making, you're taking fertilizer and you're using technology to make fertilizer work better, I guess you would say, you know what I mean? And when we're having limited farming land throughout the world, and we're doing a lot of this in South America, the companies that we invested into are, and it's really where you're reviewing soil, you're seeing what's wrong with it, you're seeing where it can be optimized and using technology for it. And obviously with everything that's going on, especially with the war, but we've been doing this for... I don't know. I've been investing for an in ag tech probably for 18 months. So I feel it's something that's coming along where you're having a lot of countries. There's, you hear it all the time of farmland going away and all that's kind of happening. And so it's really pushing that um, any type of soil that has to be that you're using technology to really find how you can optimize it and how you can really what needs to be done to kind of maximize the output. So it's interesting. It's a very interesting thing that we invest into. And
0: very passively, let's just say. <laughs> You're not in the laboratory uh, trying to the compounds. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> That's correct. Right. Awesome. Well, appreciate you shedding some light on that. So, Charles, you've been in commercial real estate for a long while, 16, 17 years. You've seen a couple of cycles. Maybe sketch a little bit of your background for our listeners.
1: Yeah. So really quickly, so I grew up in multifamily real estate. My dad bought his first multifamily property in 1984. It was a six-family and not so great of a neighborhood. So when I grew up going in the... You know, I guess you'd say 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, going to, as I was younger, going to my dad's properties. And he had with a partner, I guess, up to almost 100 units. And he self-managed them all. He had a small team. But the properties were D, minus. C-, let's just say, to be nicely to my father, not great properties. He knew that. And when I got out of college a few years later, I was ready to buy a property. And my dad just kind of instilled in me in buying in better areas. And I took that half-heartedly. I wish I'd bought better the areas I was in. But It's definitely goes to show you that that's definitely a rookie mistake. So it's like the first thing I ever tell new investors to buy in better areas whenever you think it and don't be swayed by this nice cash flow statistics that are being put up there, or all these rents that are coming in when they put them into the listing. That's, uh, you know, you have to take that with a grain.
0: So yeah, you mentioned as we were chit-chatting beforehand that you had a portfolio of smaller multifamily that you had built personally and self-managed. There's got to be some stories there. you know. Broadly, sketch for us what got you into that, why you decided to self-manage, and why you ultimately decided to exit uh, 18 months ago.
1: Yeah, so I started buying that in 06, and I was buying 06, 08, 09. And uh, so I went from the best all the way to the worst times of buying, which is just kind of one of those things where people are always like, oh, I'm going to wait for a better time or wait for prices to come down. Everybody hears this, right? And it's really one of those things where yeah, the one in 06 was probably like a single or maybe a double, I guess, if you really push it. But the one you bought and you know, I bought in the end of 09 would definitely be like a home run. So it's one of those things that you consistently have to look at properties. Like we were talking about, Sam, beforehand, uh, before the call. And it's just something that when you're looking at properties, you have to kind of know that, you know, not every deal is going to be a home run. And you just know that you consistently buying, you're consistently underwriting properties. And when something pencils, I mean, you're taking it down. And I think that's kind of, my mentality because even if you're taking down a double and something like this I mean the return is still going to be much better than you're going to get in other asset classes so I think that's very important for investors to take into consideration and then without knowing it who knows maybe you're buying in you know 2018 or 2019 and you've got covid around the corner and you're selling it for a fortune 2 years later so you you just don't know what's going to happen and I think it's just important that when stuff pencils you know buy for cash flow don't buy for appreciation all these things that you hear from everybody else And I think that that's kind of like the safest way of doing it. And when I was doing it, I self managed it from 06 to 2012. I moved down to Florida in 2012, so I didn't really have a choice. I was selling or I was having third party management, which was kind of a blessing. And I wish I'd done it a little earlier. Six years gives you a lot of, it gives you a lot of experience in dealing with C class tenants, which is great. Something you can, you can pull over into any other part of real estate investing. But it's also great to do the self-managing, but it's also great to focus on your acquisitions and bring in that third-party manager.
0: Yeah. And then ultimately, you've disposed of those here recently?
1: Yeah. I uh, I sold it to another investor. Those are all based where I was originally from in Connecticut. And I sold those to an investor that had other units in the area. So for him, it was great because he was getting more scale with his property manager. And for us, it was perfect because now we could put it into other markets that we were really focusing on. Connecticut's not really a landlord-friendly state at all. And we learned that for the most truth right through COVID when we had tenants not paying for like a year. So got those tenants out, seasoned them, sold them. And that was kind of what our plan was. And it's great. It's all learning experience when you're doing it. You know what I mean? But it's something that we really focus on more landlord-friendly states. We're focusing on states and areas where there's actual growth. You know, It's not just a straight line. And that's really what our focus is on now because getting a mix of cash flow is really important, but getting the mix of cash flow and appreciation, which is something you can't really get appreciation in markets that aren't growing. So it's really important for investors to, when they're investing, especially in the multifamily, you're investing in the areas where there's growth not just population, but also job growth, and where there's also a regular decrease that you're seeing over, let's say, a decade or two in crime. And that way, you can see that there's money being reinvested into the community, there's people moving in with jobs, and that's where you're
0: going to have minimal issues trying to rent your apartments. Yeah, It's a fairly simple recipe on where to invest. (laughs) It's hard to get the cake to come out right. I mean, there's a it's ton true. of work that goes into it, but the recipe itself is just not that challenging. I have so much respect for people though who cut their teeth or or even still invest in areas like Connecticut. I was talking to a guy the other day who invests in Baltimore, some of those areas in the Northeast or in some of the rust belt cities, you know, like a Dayton or some of those areas where there's just not a lot of growth. Man, that that is the heart of the hard right there.
1: You have to buy extremely right in those markets. Not saying that you can you're going to be overpaying when you're getting into areas that are really growing. And I hate using that word and I hate saying that, but it's kind of true. But you're paying for where the growth's coming. And you're going to pay over compared to another unit. So you, yeah, you're going to have an area. But the thing is that if I'm off my rents $100 in an area that's not growing per month, that's a huge difference compared to if I'm off that amount in an area that's really growing. You know what I mean? Because it's going to make up with the growth. Maybe not first year, but maybe in the second or third. So it's very important to buy in areas that are growing, nowhere, no matter where
0: you are. Yeah, and you talked a little bit about the the concept of just staying consistent in your acquisition efforts, underwriting deals, and not trying to time the cycle. It, it makes me think of a lot of some of the big stock pickers, um, you know, like Warren Buffett or Charlie Munger, or some of those guys. That the time in market is really important. Yeah. And yes, you know, every investor thinks that they can time cycles, but generally, it's the folks who have a process, stick to it that are successful in stocks. That's something that's more commonly accepted. Mm-hmm. And I think that same thing is true in commercial real estate.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you're, you're consistently buying, but then there's also the time too is when the time to sell, you know what I mean? Or when the time to pull out some equity, how much equity do you pull out? But I think timing to sell, especially when you have investors, it's very important because i spoken to a number of investors that when we were selling properties at the beginning of 2022, and we're like, oh, it's going to close and they want to hold it. Well, they're they're happy they sold it now. You know what I mean? Because it would have been, I don't know, two, three years to get something close to that price, or maybe that price again, or over that price, whatever it might be. But it's something that you kind of have to not get greedy. And there's a great quote My one of my mentors told me that only a sucker sells at to the top of the market. And that's something I really, I think it was JFK Senior originally told it or something, but it's something that it's, it's so important and it's so true. You know what I mean? You're thinking you're selling at the top or you're going to wait for the top. You're never going to hit it. Who knew they were selling? I, I never knew I was selling my stuff at the top in like 2022. You just thought like, oh, I'm selling it on the way up. And it's a way of getting money back to investors, getting money out for us. And now they can take their profits and now they can reinvest it into not just one deal, they can now reinvest into two deals. You know what I mean? So it's safer for them. And I think that's really important, but it's difficult. You know, it's difficult to make the decision there. So it's really, if you have the business plan, you stick to the business plan when you're putting money in and when you're taking money out.
0: Yeah. we Same thing for us. We sold a couple of deals in 2021, right at the very end of the year. And there was definitely some investors that were questioning the decision. And now, in hindsight, it looks fantastic. But I, I think that goes to a point that so many of the investors you syndicate, we're syndicating as well. You know, there's a lot of investors who've only been investing for the last five years, maybe even 18, 24 months. They're used to everything being smooth and pushing forward. And now we're seeing rubber meeting the road, right? There mm-hmm. it really matters. What was your business plan? Was it based primarily around floating rate debt and constant growth? Like that. That can work in the right cycle but the cycle is over now and, and things have changed how are you messaging that to how did you message that to investors those principles those truths and are you finding people more receptive to those kinds of messages now that the cycle has changed
1: i think you're getting investors when i'm speaking to investors now and it's really just reinforcing what the business plan is and reinforcing how we work and There's another, as you brought up Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett has another famous quote where it's like, we'd rather take a bumpy 15% than a smooth 12%. And I think that's a very interesting and very important quote that investors, past investors specifically should take into consideration because that is exactly how it works. I mean, we're buying businesses, like you said, someone that came in in the last four years. Has seen rent increases with uh, without doing anything. They didn't have to do anything in the properties and they could have sold it higher one day later, three years later. And it's that's not how it works normally. So it's something that you just have to reinforce it with investors that there's going to be ups, there's going to be downs. You know what I mean? In the process, we're going to have times when our occupancy and everybody's paying is 97%. And we're going to have times when we're doing all this renovation stuff like this, that drops into the high 80s or whatever it might be. And you just have to let people know that that's how it's going, and that's uh, and what you're doing to get it to, you know, the final what I call like the equity multiple, and that's the whole goal. Of the whole project is getting there, and you know, get distributions during the way. But the main thing is really building the wealth and how you build the wealth through the equity multiple.
0: So Charles, you know we're living in interesting times. The economy has changed pretty dramatically over the last twenty-four months. You know there was the the sugar high of COVID and and all the money that was parachuting in from every corner of the globe, and now the Fed is kind of dealing with the the ramifications of that. As I've been browsing through your LinkedIn profile, I've noticed that you've been posting a ton of stuff on the single family market, which is interesting. I find that I, I kind of geek out over some of those same statistics. Um, I'm curious when you're looking at where things are headed, mm-hmm. what are the tea leaves that you're paying attention to? What are the leading indicators that that really catch your fancy? I want to see how
1: easy it is for people to buy houses because Sam, I believe you guys are more B class investors as well and all types of B class, I believe. So if you're in B or definitely in A, you're, you're dealing with people that can buy houses in most markets, right? Maybe now with interest rates, it's a little different, but in most markets, this is who you're really competing against. It may not be the apartment owner across the street that has another pool or something like that you're really competing with them buying a house and so i like to see exactly how asking prices are going where the realization i like seeing when the realization uh, in times like this of sellers is coming in and they're finding out that they can't sell it for what they were going to sell it for eight months ago or whatever it might be and that's something that kind of trickles down into multifamily Because you'll have brokers that give this high price, usually not all, you know, not all, but you'll have brokers or agents giving them a high, you know, price in their BPO. And then when they actually dig into it, they find out that a few months later, hey, we really have to discount this and all this kind of stuff to sell it. And I think when that starts happening, it trickles through from residential into multifamily, but it also shows that now, when you're doing rent increases, when you have it, this might be an area where you're gonna have maybe increased vacancy. If it's easier in your market of where this property is, where your is located for people to buy, they might buy instead of renewing for another year with you.
0: Yeah, one of the statistics that you posted recently that I found very interesting was the median asking price. If you'd asked me to bet, I would have said that that would be down just because of interest rates and everything, but it was actually up almost 3% year over year for January of 2023. You know, but simultaneously, I think part of that is because we're seeing listing numbers go down as well. I was looking at some other statistics on my own that were showing that inventory is down year over year in some places by 20%. I just think that's a very interesting factor. I attribute that to people not moving as much. You know, the, the great resignation has kind of passed. People are a little bit more worried about their employment future. They're not as willing to pull up stakes in large part because of interest rates and just general doom and gloomism from MSNBC or some of these other channels. But I'm curious, what are your thoughts when you see some of those statistics?
1: You're right on, Sam. But I also think one thing to add to that is the interest rates. If someone... I have a family member that locked in something like two years ago for like 2.75. They're not moving. You know what I mean? So... Because the price that they paid for the property, you know, their payment was done and how it was kind of subsidized, the pricing of what they overpaid for it by the cheap debt. So the thing is that they can't get that. It's not assumable. So they can't sell that debt. Yeah, you can do all the sub two, but most people aren't going to do any of that stuff. So it's like that can't be transferred to the new property, right? It's not like us where we can have something that's assumable and now you can sell it and still get a little bit of a better price if you have a low interest rate on your mortgage. You know what I mean? Um, with certain like agency lenders and stuff. But that's not something you do with residential. So I feel a lot of people are sitting, you know what I mean? Where they are now, staying where they are until they might see that prices come down a little bit more, where they can move kind of more lateral into another property that's maybe bigger, where they're getting a discount on the price that's going to match the discount that they got on the debt. So that's one reason I
0: believe. Yeah. It's been interesting, too. In some of the markets that have the, the highest listing drops, there are also areas that have some higher short-term rentals. Um, mm-hmm. And that market has been it was really the it thing back a year ago, six months ago even. and then that story seems to have turned, although Airbnb's earnings came out really strong today. I'm curious how that will impact the single family market because so much of that short-term rental was based on you know a good regulatory environment, travel continuing, mm-hmm. and then generally you know rents and occupancy being high. If that were to change in a down economy, I'm curious how that sector will survive and if that will have a meaningful trickle over into single family and multifamily patterns.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. That's a very interesting fact because it might be where if you have Airbnbs that are houses, they might be, you might consider them starter homes, someone moving from your B-class apartment into that. So if those are not Airbnbs anymore, those are now being probably put on the market because maybe someone purchased that years back. And the only way that they could cover the mortgage wasn't by a 12-month lease, but was by a short-term rental model. So they still made money on it, probably, keeping it for so many years. And now they're just selling it for to a homeowner. So there's a number of different ways this can go. But I just, I really feel that we're, you know, the interest, I think you have, the prices haven't come down enough to make up for
0: where the interest rates were years back. So... Yeah. Yeah. Purchasing power has still been negatively impacted for sure. The bearish case for commercial real estate or multifamily real estate in 2023
1: is. Um, I don't know, you tell me, Sam. I guess I mean (laughs) I, I was reading some I was reading some stats this morning saying that, you know, we're talking about residential. I know you just asked me about multifamily, and you know, there was one that was saying that Q1 2024 is supposed to be the low point. Or this pullback, what they say. I don't know how true that is, but you know, I think that you're gonna have more and more sellers and like we were talking beforehand, you know, we haven't been getting that many deals under contract, under LOI, even getting the best and final, like you were saying. And it's something that, you know, we're still waiting for a lot of sellers to come to terms with interest rates, which interest rates aren't gonna be going back down. To what they were. Maybe they'll go up another half percent or percent and then come down another percent. But it's something that they kind of have to come to that realization and that's going to make more of these properties move. And I think if someone bought in the last three or four years, they've already made money. So I think that's easier. I think it's going to be a little harder for people that are coming off like you were talking about earlier, the bridge debt, and they didn't maybe have interest rate caps, and they're kind of struggling for that refinance that really isn't happening. That stuff I think is going to be coming on the market too, in one way or another, because I think banks are going to tighten up. And I've already seen it with local banks on even smaller levels with some investors I talked to here in Florida.
0: Yeah. Conversely, in a more positive direction, the bullish case would be soft landing
1: and saying that uh, what you know what we're doing there, and saying you know maybe we have a few. Uh, I mean, maybe interest rates go up like. Another quarter percent, then come down another point and a half over the next year or something. I don't know. I mean, and we settle somewhere in the you know ten years settle somewhere in like the the mid threes. You know what I mean? Three percent. I don't know something like that. But it's still. I don't. I don't think they're going to go that much higher. Depends on how inflation goes and everything like that. And to P, you know see if they keep on putting on the brakes. But I mean, once it's really slows down, you can't just turn it back on. You know, we we learned that about everything with the economy going through COVID. And we thought, oh, we can just turn back on all these things. Well, that's not really a thing. Yeah.
0: I think even inflation, as much as we've talked about it and it's been studied, it's very poorly understood. And there's a lot of the toothpaste is out of the tube. I'm not sure we can get it back in. We certainly aren't going to do it by scooping it up and pushing it with our finger. So it's interesting that you had mentioned soft landing. I can't decide in my own mind what would be more helpful for multifamily real estate if we had a soft landing, because that probably means higher rates for longer versus maybe a little bit of a sharper burst of pain, but that results in interest rates coming back down. It's kind of an interesting thought experiment. Pain is never a fun thing to wish on society as a whole. So I'd probably root for a soft landing, but there possibly is a case to be made that that might actually be a little bit more challenging for those of us, that, especially folks that bought with bridge debt that uh, are trying to refi in the next 18 months. Yeah,
1: that's a great point. One thing you said about the CPI just before that is like, it's very, it's not understood, but it's also highly manipulated. So I think that's what? something too. What? <laughs> <laughs> Especially around housing. So it's something wow. like that. But I'll tell you one thing. When I bought in the, I bought a house, I bought a single family or I bought a small multi, was three unit in the end of 06, six and a half interest rate. I bought one at the end of 08. Five and a half interest rate. I refinanced both of them at mid twenty ten for four and a quarter. So interest rates come down pretty fast, and that's one thing that they have. The government has they can spend, and they can change the interest rates. And I think it's something that if they put on the brakes too much and raise them up, I mean it's just going to come down faster. Could be completely wrong on that, but it's just something that I feel that we saw it before, and that's you know coming down one percent a year over those times, half percent a year. And I mean, that it was their way of getting the economy going again.
0: Yeah, it is interesting just how much power is in the government's hands when it comes to the economy. I mean, the interest rates really move things significantly. We can argue all day whether that's a good or a bad thing. But the, the reality is that's the, the where we live in this moment in time. And so we need to make sure that we're adjusting our tactics accordingly. You've hinted at your tactics a little bit along the way, always swinging on the acquisition front, maintaining consistent underwriting standards. What are some important factors when you're underwriting deals today that are kind of non-negotiable? Are you really locked in on fixed rate debt? Are you willing to consider floaters now that we think we're on the higher end? Walk me through some of those things that would make a good business plan come together for you and your group coming into 23.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm more open to floating debt. With I think where we are, obviously with rate caps, you know what I mean. And I would say two years, three year rate caps are very expensive, but you know you want to go and be, make sure it can pencil. The last deal we did was fixed, you know what I mean. So it's something that we're still doing that. As I tell you one thing, I'm doing something else. But I would look at it coming in. But the other thing is that not looking for heavy value ads, I'm looking for light, and that's been something that we've been working on over the last year or two. And then also not buying any C class stuff. We deposed, disposed of everything except for one property in C class. And I think going forward, it's really just going to be focusing on B, uh, B minus and above, let's just say. And I, you know, that's much better when you're getting into these types of times because the C class renter, I was reading an article, you know, how I love articles and data. It was like average C class tenant has like less than $400 in savings. So just think of that if you're renting even a $1,000 a month apartment. I mean, one week of them not having a job or having their hours cut will dramatically delay when you're getting paid because you know it's you're going to rent, it's going to get paid late. Nothing else, right? Netflix is still getting paid on time. So it's just something that you have to take in consideration. And I think it's It's really important to know that when you're renting it. And that just goes hand in hand with buying in better areas, which I think most people listening to this podcast understand that. But if anybody's new out there, that's like the big thing because you go through these times like this and you have these classes that aren't B minus or above. I mean, they really really don't have the savings and it's terrible. It's terrible to hear. But we read all this stuff about 60% of people can't cover an expense and all stuff. You know, you don't want someone paying rent that has to do it by going to the payday loan. So it's very important that you know buying better areas, and I would avoid major renovations.
0: Yeah, it's uncanny. We have much the same strategy. We've done a lot of C class over the years, and it's been very good. We've bought in mm-hmm. Colorado, especially, which has been a fantastic place to own. But moving forward, we're we're stepping into some more midwestern markets and stepping up yeah. and so like the deal we're under or we're getting ready to do right now is relatively new mm-hmm. man it's straight from a developer so that, you know there's things like that that you can really lower the risk the top line return might not be quite as sexy but man the floor is a lot higher and anymore i, th- I think educating investors on the importance of that high floor and just thinking in terms of not overall return but what's your risk adjusted return and do you have your eyes open to all the risks going into let's call it a heavy value add, I think that people are going to learn a lot of valuable lessons over the next 24 months as we see some of these business plans not really come together in a, a way that's going to salvage the deal. And then you're going to see a lot of what you're talking about. I think that's going to be a way to, you know, even if the downside is like 10% IRR over a five year hold, that's still relatively decent and and chances yeah. are you'll be in the low teens.